Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to our Providence series after we took a week off for Easter. Hope you all had a good Easter weekend and Easter week this past week. Uh, we are going to jump back into the issue of the topic of Providence. Uh, as a reminder, we've got more copies of Piper's book on Providence in the box over there on that table. There's a number of books out there. If you'd like to grab one, if you don't have one yet, you can take one home. It is yours to keep. Uh, Jerry, can you pray for us? And then maybe could you give an opening word just to remind us why this topic is important before we dive in? Yeah, yes, sir. Thank you. Love to. Gracious Father, what a great joy to come before your uh, throne today. And uh, Lord, we are so grateful, overwhelmed really with uh, uh, the prospect of living this week again um, under your providential um, hand. And Lord, we are grateful that uh, every single thing that happens in the life of every single uh, person, every molecule that is uh, floating around in our world is uh, directly under your control. And Lord, today, um, we, are, we are very grateful for that. I pray that that would impact um, every minute of our day, uh, that that would keep us from um, anxiety or uh, stress, fear, um, keep, us, keep us from pride, um, to think that we possibly... Uh, are in control, uh, and today it wouldn't just be um, theological, although it certainly is, and it's certainly true, and uh, we certainly love this doctrine, but it would change the way we operate. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. One fear that uh, we would have is that uh, this becomes something that we um, grasp in our minds, and the, and the reason I guess I'm mentioning this is that uh, I was telling Miss Elizabeth, this is my battle from 2 to 3 o'clock on Sundays, I am so completely convinced of this, and it is thrilling. And I leave at 2.50 just saying, oh, wow, is life going to be amazing? God's in control. I can trust him. And then something happens. That's an interruption in my day somehow. And all of a sudden, I... I, there's some sort of stress or worry or fear. And I'd just like to, to ask us today to say, could we really take what we see to here today and um, ask the Lord to apply it, to think about how this takes care of every worry, of every fear, of all anxiety in, uh, in and this is, you have interruptions to your day. All, all day. In sixth grade Bible, um, somebody's aunt is going to have to uh, take their dog to Albuquerque and the dog gets parvo and that's a three and a half minute story when I want to talk about the second coming of Christ. And that's, not, and that irks me sometimes when it doesn't need to. And so you have a hundred of those in your day as well. And so all of this is so practical. And this is why we're spending five, six, seven <laughs> decades on this topic. And, uh, and it's a thrilling one the more we think of it. Can I just squeeze in a story? I'm, I'm going to tell the story because I don't know how much I'll add today with these guys on this topic. But I, I was thinking just to piggyback on that, Charles Spurgeon converted young as a teenager. He became pastor of what, New Park Street Church, like in 19, something like that. And like he was so gifted of God. His fame is spreading. Church is growing. 22 years old, he's preaching at the, what is it, the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, packed out beyond belief, people everywhere. 
Pranksters yell fire, and the stampede ensues. Seven people died. 28 people were severely injured. And this is what one author said. His mind was never the same again. His wife, Susanna, wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. And then this is Michael Reeve said, Severe illness, fierce opposition, and bereavement all made their mark on the great preacher's life, so much so that today he would almost certainly be diagnosed as clinically depressed and treated with medication and therapy. I mean, after the certain music, he couldn't even look at a Bible, he said. I mean, he was just so deeply grieved by this. And then he had gout. He had people said all kinds of horrible things about him. But then Reeve said this, In all this, Spurgeon believed that God had a good purpose in all his suffering. And because of it, felt he had become a better prepared, a better prepared and more compassionate pastor. Spurgeon believed that our Heavenly Father ordained suffering for believers, and indeed the suffering the Lord granted to Spurgeon tenderized him and allowed him to be a doctor of souls in a unique way. And then Spurgeon himself said this, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. So again, I mean, it's just so absolutely practical. In immense suffering, like God is good. He's, he's weighing it out exactly as we need, and he has good purpose in it. It will bring stability. Faith will be strengthened. We'll be armed against sin. I mean, so many practical reasons why we're, we're spending so much time. Yes. Oh, and uh, just one more thing. Is that, that I normally say when something's good, oh, look, at that's God's providential hand. And it is no more providential than when something that doesn't look good is happening. And that's the part that I want to remember. You know, it, we do need to look at every, God's the author of every good and perfect gift. There's no doubt about that. But of every trial, he is as well, like you're saying. And, and we have to grasp that and love that doctrine and enjoy it for what it is, because it's true. The, uh, just, just to review a little bit and to catch back up to speed, one, one definition of providence would be this, God's purposeful sovereignty, whereby he works all things together for his glory and the good of his people. That's a very simple, boiled-down definition, but I'll say it one more time. God's purposeful sovereignty, whereby he works all things together for his glory and the good of his people. And I want to read a classic de uh, definition here uh, that we've read in the past, Heidelberg Catechism, which we've talked about in the past here. Uh, listen to this wonderful explanation. I know Papa Fred loves this, uh, this particular part of the Heidelberg Catechism. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herb and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand." And the next part here, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence doth still uphold all things? Quote, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, that without his will they cannot so much as move. You, you can't really summarize it much better than that. Thoughts on that wonderful uh, definition? No, that's what I meant. <laughs> I <don't. laughs> yeah. Well, um, I'll recommend a resource, too, with this. Owen Strand uh, wrote a book 
uh, where he draws from Jonathan Edwards. It's a year-long devotional called, I think, Always in God's Hands or something like that, drawing from that very kind of language. Um, and, and the whole point is to encourage us to trust that we are, no matter where we are, what we're going through, whether good or bad, we're in God's hands. Like, we're never outside. He's, we're never away from him. He's never absent. Um, he's always there, always at work, always watching over us. You know, and, and again, to draw from um, what Brother Ron said at the retreat, um, you know, nothing comes to us but what God signs off on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if he signs off on it, he's got a good reason for signing off of it. Not just the good, but also the difficult. Um, so, yeah, always, I think it's in God's hands, always in God's hands by Owen Strand, using Jonathan Edwards for devotional. Really good if you want that. I'm not here to plug that, but I think it was, a, it was really good for me when I read it, so. So we, we want to talk today, coming at this whole issue from a slightly different angle than we have so far. We, we want to look at the goal of God's providence, and we want to look at why, at least for some people, and I, probably in our flesh, all of us to some degree, why it poses a problem to our flesh. So what is God's goal in all that He works together? What's His goal? And he, So providence is He's working everything for some goal. What is that goal, and why does that goal sometimes bother us in our fallen nature? Okay, so we're going to look at some verses. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 48. Uh, this one is, would be great to have right in front of you. I'm going to put some of these on the screen as well. And then we're going to look at some quotes from some skeptics who think this is, makes God sound not attractive to them. And, and we're, going to, we're going to interact with, with some of that. So uh, turn to Isaiah 48. Before we get to Isaiah 48, uh, look at just on the screen here a very famous verse, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Well, who made the heavens? God did. Why did God make the heavens? To declare His glory. So what we're going to start getting into is this idea that God is not just creating and working things together. He's doing it for a goal, and the goal is His own glory. Now, if you've been around the Bible and church for a long time, this may not be anything surprising to you. But if, if, if Christianity is a newer idea, or if you've just become a Christian recently, this may be a surprising thought. God is creating all the universe, the vast reaches of space, and what's His goal? To declare His own glory. People talk about why is the universe so incomprehensively massive and just beyond our wildest fathoming. God is telling us something about the difference between you and Him <laughs> in our size versus His size. And God is illustrating something about his own glory. But Isaiah 48, uh, if, you're, if you're there, we will look at this briefly. Uh, Jerry, can you read verses 9 to 11? Yeah, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Before I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Greg, thoughts about a text like this? Well, it gets down into the, uh, the root issue of why God does what he does. I mean, in the context, he's talking to Israel here about why they haven't ultimately been cut off. I mean, if anybody was culpable, if anybody was accountable to God... It was Israel. I mean, they had his law. They had his salvation, his redemption. They had the temple. They had the priesthood. So in, in one sense, they were more accountable to God than the other nations because they had more revelation than the other nations did. 
Um, and so they willingly sinned against God. Like they, they committed idolatry an untold number of times. They committed all kinds of abominations. They repeatedly worshiped other gods. And the Bible says they abandoned the Lord and God bore with them. God bore with them. God bore with them. And even when he finally, so, so many years later, brought judgment through Assyria and Babylon, he didn't totally destroy them. We have to ask the question, why? Because he wiped out the other nations of Canaan, and he's wiped out other peoples as well. Why is it that God had, did not completely get rid of Israel? He tells us right here why. Look at it again. For my namesake, for the sake of my praise, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake. And then look at the question God himself asks, for how should my name be profaned? God, when he saved Israel, he attached his name to them. So his reputation was then on the line in how he responds to his people. And if he utterly cuts them off, then he's basically telling the world, you can't trust me because I made all these great promises to the nation of Israel and then I ended up breaking them if he cuts them off utterly and they are done forever. And so what is it God is concerned about? His reputation. He wants the world to, to think about him, to see him in a very specific way. And so he will not let his name be profaned um, because the worth of his name is of the utmost worth in the world. And then, so that needs to become, practically again, that needs to be what we make this. Naturally, we are concerned about our own rep reputation, mm -hmm. our own comfort, our own whatever fun. And we need to train our minds to yes. think in this way. Well, that we're it's we're bent the other way. We are. We are. So, and I mean, we're going to look at some quotes, and I, I look forward to this, but we are just naturally bent to want to make everything about us, to be man-centered. We are not naturally God-centered. We have to intentionally turn ourselves to repeatedly, day by day, put God first in our hearts and in our minds, because if we don't, he won't be. I mean, it's just that simple. He won't be if we're not intentional in, in daily saying, God, you have to be first. That's what's best. I want to live not for my praise, but for your praise. I don't want to live to make my name look good. I want to live to make your name look good. And we have to, it doesn't matter if we've walked with Jesus for 30 years. We still have to some days drag ourselves to that because, our, because of remaining indwelling sin, we just naturally lean towards exalting ourselves. And Scott, wouldn't you say that to meditating on God's word day and night, you've helped us with that. We have to. Otherwise, it's not going to naturally be there. Yeah, yeah. I would just say a practical way to do, I mean, I would agree exactly with what y'all are saying. Like we're, we're drawn, like every day you wake up, it's like you're drawn again to self-centeredness and all those things. An easy way to do it, tie it in with the Lord's Prayer, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The very first petition that Jesus teaches us to pray is make your name great in the world. That should be the number one thing you pray for. Hallowed be your name in my life, in my family, my church, this city, the, the world. Make your name holy, pure, righteous, you know, uh, set apart as, as holy. If we would just start every day praying, hallowed be your name, like in my life, my family's life, my church's life, the people around me. I mean, this will help sort of like the, the, what do you, the alignment. Mark, you said we, all, we get off alignment. This will help get our car back in alignment, our soul back in alignment, going in a God's inner direction, praying that, that God's name would be hallowed. Again, you're coming back to God does everything for his name. We, we want God's name to be honored 
and glorified in our life and in others. So practical way, pray the Lord's Prayer, that first petition for sure, an easy way to kind of help mm. that. Yeah, because yeah, our, our natural bent is hallowed be my name. Our natural mm-hmm. bent is praying that my name be hallowed, set apart, sanctified. People love my name. But no, 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 that's the, that's the very core of fallenness is that reversal. God's name should be the central issue. Let's, let's move on to another text here. Why is Jesus coming back? You mentioned the second coming that you're teaching on. Why is he coming back? Verses like this, if people have never read this before, the first time you hear a verse like this, you, you go, wow. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When a non-believer hears that, oftentimes they will object and they'll say, wait a second. If I said I was coming somewhere to be marveled at and to be glorified, you would probably think I was egotistical. Something was wrong with me. And Jesus just unashamedly, he's coming back. Why? To be glorified on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He's not embarrassed of that fact. He's not trying to cover that fact up. He inspired Paul to record that fact in scripture. Jesus is unashamed. I'm coming back for my glory. I'm coming out to be, I'm coming back to be marveled at. Let's look at another text here. This is Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So that includes angelic, the angelic realm, as well as the earthly realm. All things were created through him and for him. I want to hear from Greg on this. I remember, this is a funny, weird thing to mention. I just, for some odd reason, I'd just become a Christian about a year earlier. I was probably (laughs) 17-ish. Of all places, you can laugh at me. I was was early morning, I was at Cracker Barrel. And uh, I I still remember this vividly because this this text is the text I was actually thinking of. I just become a Christian and I was thinking about Colossians 1, verse 16 right here. All things were made through him and for him. And I, this is the Cracker Barrel near Walmart. You know, all Cracker Barrels are near Walmart, Walmart, I think. And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking out the window, and the sun was just starting to come up. It's early in the morning, so I don't know what time it is. It's early in the morning. It's before school day, my senior year of high school. The sun is coming up, and it's just this glorious-looking morning. And it just hit me in the way I cannot... It wasn't academic. It was experiential. I had this overwhelming sense of... Gee, all the physical material in the table I'm sitting at, the chair that I'm sitting on, that sunrise coming up, all of this, all these materials were made by Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. And it, it hit me with, with, with authenticity that this is true. And it just blew me away. And, and that, that is an amazing thought that all things were made by him, through him, and for him. Greg, thoughts on this text? Um, I'm going to draw from a couple of texts, but I'll, I'll focus on this one. We think about everything being made for him. Um, you know, go back to Second uh, Thessalonians, that, that phrase you highlighted, to marvel at. I mean, I, I, wanna, I don't want us to rush by that um, because the, the word literally means to, to be utterly amazed at. Like, you know, you think of something where it's like, you know, we say it made my jaw drop. Um, that's what this is saying, that when Jesus comes back, he's going to be glorified in us, and we're going to be jaw-droppingly, utterly amazed at him. Like, and this is going to be the jaw-dropping of all jaw-droppings in history. Um, so amazing. Um, and and what, I, what I'm getting at here, we'll see this in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, is this glory that God is pursuing um, in the world the, for himself um, it's not just glory. Piper brings us out. It's for the praise of his glory. And we'll look at that in a, in a, more in a minute. 
And so when we think about everything being made for Christ, it's not like in some dry, dead sense. It's everything exists for him, for his praise, for his honor, for his renown, so that in everything, like we would love him more, we would praise him more, we would trust him more. Um, but it all goes back to him. Um, and, and emotion and affection is not absent from this. When we think about everything being made through him and for him, we, we bring Second uh, Thessalonians in. Um, go ahead, if you will, flip to the left to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, we'll read verses 4 through 6, and, and I hope this all ties together. Well, um, Paul talking here about how... I, I won't be able to get it yeah, just Um That even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And listen to this, not just to his glory, but to the praise of his glorious grace or the glory of his grace um, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so God's intention in displaying his glory and in doing everything for his glory is not just that his glory is seen, but that his glory is praised. It's prized. It's valued. Um, because God ultimately isn't honored if we just see his glory and we're unaffected by it. And I hope that makes sense. I mean, we know like it's one thing to acknowledge that, oh, wow, that's a great work of art. It's another thing to be affected by it. We see glory in sunsets and sunrises and like mountain vistas. And it's not just, oh, wow, that's nice. No, we're moved. And, and we, we, we speak about how, how great it is. I remember, um, you know, I went to, I spent a summer in Yosemite National Park working. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> I never got tired of it um, the whole, for two months. But like the, the scenery out there, um, and there's the famous picture like on one of the roadways outside the park where you kind of look and you see Half Dome, you see El Capitan, and like you see one of the big waterfalls. Like when, when you see stuff like that, like it, 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 it affects you. And that when we think about God displaying his glory, what Paul mentions in verse 6 of Ephesians 1, that's huge to the praise of his glory. God displays his glory. When Jesus comes back for his people, it's not just, okay, Jesus is back. No, he, like, the, the goal is that his people praise him, that we worship him, that we make a big deal about him. So everything was through him and for him. We have to think in light of that and along with that for his praise, for his worship. Um, it, it is the glory of God is meant to be seen, but it's also meant to be valued, enjoyed, appreciated. Um, go ahead. I, I know you got more to say. I mean, I'll, just, I'll just pause real quick and just say in terms of what you were saying in the Cracker Barrel, Mark's sitting there thinking that Jesus made everything, like everything from the table to, to, to the start. I mean, I think for me, and again, this is just a pausing of, of the main point uh, as a side note, thinking about the majesty of Jesus and then combining it with the mercy of Jesus is, is one of the fastest ways to jumpstart a cold, like, affections for Jesus are cold. Think about those two things. I mean, think about he's made literally everything. I mean, the, the, you look in the, the, the universe, the star, the largest star is just massive to the smallest little hummingbird. I saw a hummingbird. I love hummingbirds. I saw a hummingbird the other day, just, sitting, just outside. They're amazing. Like God's made them, them all. But then in Colossians 1.20, I think it says, making peace by the blood of his cross. Like it's just a staggering contrast from the majesty of Jesus. He made literally everything peace, by the. it's almost incomprehensible. Making peace by the blood of his cross. He came and humbled himself, becoming nothing like shed his blood, spit upon by his creatures, died in, in, 
ignominy and shame, and you combine those two things. It's, it's just a fast track to just, the worship will be drawn out. You want to praise. The, the, he is awesome in majesty and awesome in his meekness and mercy. And it's just it's a fast track to worship. And I would say, you know, we're going to look at six passages or whatever we can get through today, but it's just laced throughout Scripture. You know, if you're reading through Exodus, why does God do everything he does? He does everything he does to show us that he's the Lord. And it's just throughout everything when we start looking for it, it's everywhere. And even when we're not looking for it, it's everywhere. And we need to see it like that general revelation, like you guys are talking about in special revelation throughout his word. It's, this shouldn't be a secret that God uh, want, wants to do everything, does everything for his glory. Yeah, just another, I mean, we could come up with innumerable examples. Genesis 1, God makes Adam and Eve in his image. Now, Piper just goes, let's think about that for one second. When you make an image of something, it's usually to venerate or esteem something. You lift something up, it's some famous historical figure that you care about. You make an image of that person and you want to recognize that person's importance or whatever it might be, a Mount Rushmore type of thing. You, you want to do that. He says, okay, God from, from square one, from, from ground zero, God says, okay, I want to create eventually billions of human beings. I want all of them to be image bearers of my likeness, my glory. I want them to be like a 45-degree mirror allowing the God of heaven to reflect off of them. Our holiness and our love and our truthfulness would in some way dimly reflect God's attributes of those kinds of things. So why did God make you? He made you to be an image bearer of his glory. So God has had billions of people live on this earth. Why? Ultimately, even if we failed to do it, our, the goal is that we would glorify God and be his image bearers here. So even from our creation, God has done this all for, for his glory. If you look here, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, going back to the cross that Scott mentioned, look at this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now look at verse 15. And he died for all. Why did he die for us? That those who live, that's believers, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So why did Jesus die for you? He died for you so that you would stop living for yourself and start living for him. He, he died for you for his own glory. He, he died for you so that we would be freed from living for ourselves and that we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who died and was raised from the dead. And Mark, that is so exciting because that's when life really becomes good. That's truly life, when we get our eyes off ourselves, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I think NIV says that um, it compels us. His love compels us to do that. And that's, Scott, you've reminded us of that over and over. And it is very compelling and controlling. It should do that. His love does. Let's keep going here. We've got, uh, oh, this is the high priestly prayer. Remember, this is on uh, Thursday evening of, of, of Easter week. Right before he goes to the Gethsemane, this is the prayer, John 17, the first few verses, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now listen to, these, listen to this prayer. The night before he goes to die for us, here's the prayer. Father, the hour has come. What's the first request? Glorify your son. That would be himself. That the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and... Jesus Christ, that would be me, uh, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I got one more verse. The end of the, the, end of the prayer, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am 
to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So again, do you see how Don Carson said that he, he's spoken for his whole life in college campuses, done evangelism. He'll do a few days of evangelism in various places around the world. He's been doing this for probably upwards of 40 years, 30, 40 years. He says, when I go back to my early days doing it, he said, this issue was almost never talked about in the Q&A with the students. You know, almost no one brought this up. He said, in the last 20 years, this has become one of the leading objections to Christianity. Why is God so, they'll use the word, egotistical? Why is God so into God? Why is God always commanding his own glorification, his own exaltation? Why is God doing everything for his glory? I think C.S. Lewis, when he was struggling with Christianity, uh, Lewis was an atheist until I think he was 29, right around there. So Lewis was an intelligent academic in his 20s and resisting the God of the Bible. And Lewis said, I'll butcher it, but along these lines, so you're telling me that God inspired the psalmists to write? Yes. And in just about every psalm, you have things like, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Enter his courts with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Glorify the Lord. All the, God inspired the psalmist to pray those things. So again, it, it's this, it goes back to everything going back to God's glory, which begins to become problematic for a number of people. Can we get into the problems? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is from uh, Michael Prouse, who is a writer for the London Financial Times. This is a, a number of years ago now. And uh, this is a quote from what he wrote in the London Financial Times. Quote, Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage, but a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? Now, let me read a couple more of these, and then we'll hear from the other guys on how to respond. Another guy named Eric Reese from the University of Kentucky wrote this. In, in response to Jesus' words in Matthew 10 at the top of the screen, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, just stop for a second. We know that verse. We've heard that. I want you to think about what Jesus just said. If you love your family members more than him, you're not worthy of him. That's a pretty amazing thing to say, isn't it? Now listen to what Eric Reese says. Who is this egomaniac speaking these words? The interviewer says to him, would you elaborate on that reaction? Reese says, well, it just struck me as who is this person speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger, saying that we should love him who we are really incapable emotionally of loving more so than we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed like an incredibly egomaniacal kind of claim to make. Let me give, uh, I think we got two more. Brad Pitt, you knew the day was coming where we would quote Brad Pitt in Sunday school, this is your day. Okay, this is back in 2007. Brad Pitt uh, for Parade Magazine was being interviewed. Listen to Brad Pitt. He grew up Southern Baptist. I, that was something I learned a while back. Religion, he says, religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and to tell you there's something bigger than you, and it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it. So Brad Pitt grew up believing in what he said was Christianity. And it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was, but it did not last for me. So why does Brad Pitt, why does he say he left Christianity for atheism? I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. 
it seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it, Christianity, made no sense to me. So how about some responses to these? They're very similar objections. How do we begin a response to these kinds of things? I think one mark is that we believe it because it's true. That's why we believe what the Bible says. And so then since it's true, we begin to respond to it. And, uh, you know, so you read that last line, I can't see God operating from ego. It made no sense to me. Um, It begins to make sense once God changes our heart. We can see how we would want to give him glory. But um, for an unbeliever, that that maybe doesn't make sense. They don't see that. But uh, but I want to make sure that we're not um, operating, we're, we're not, living for Christ because it works primarily. We're, it's not, um, you know, for that purpose and just, it, it's because it's true. We believe it and we operate because of that because that's what the Bible says. It also makes a false assumption that God's just like us in the sense that, yeah, human tyrants and dictators are evil. They're selfish. They're, they're wicked. They, they use and abuse people. Um, they do all kinds of evil things. Evil proceeds from them, um, and they make it all about them in a sinful way. But what he misses is that, one, God is righteous, flowing from that, too, God is without sin. So if God is saying, praise me, worship me, make a big deal about me, then he's not doing it with a sinful motive or from a sinful heart. Like there's, there's something missing in him. Yeah, or like there's something missing or he's needy or anything like that. He, he's doing it from a pure motive because he's God. He knows us. He knows what's good for us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's going to satisfy us and, and keep us satisfied forever. And so we can't buy into the assumption that um, Brad Pitt gives. It's like, well, it's just about ego. When we think ego, we immediately think negative, sinful. It's what's all packed into that psychological term. Um, And it's like, well, ego is bad. We can't be about ego. Um, And so for God to make any statement like that from his perspective, I mean, I can see why I'd say that if you're thinking with that type of category. But if you allow the Bible to speak even a little bit, And you start to say, wait a minute, God can't be like us. He doesn't sin. He doesn't do wrong. He doesn't have an impure motive. Evil and sin can't come from out of him. He's not needy. Then that totally changes how we look at these statements in Scripture. But you've got to be willing to consider that other side. If if you're just going to stick with this and looking, you know, doing what Paul said, you know, people to the people in Corinth, we used to think about Jesus in merely a human way, but now we see him differently. We've got to allow ourselves to see God differently than the world sees him. Let us think about God through the categories he gives us in Scripture and let Scripture direct that, and then all of a sudden we see God making a big deal about himself. It's not this sinful, selfish, evil thing. It's actually the best thing in the world for us. And Mark, can you please explain this? Because uh, this might have been because of the Cracker Barrel experience, but Mark deeply impacted me for this was your number oh, one go to for it. what, three years? This is all, all I talked and, about. Uh, yeah. Oh, so gosh. from we're going back 15, 18 years. This is why we need expositional is, preaching. So yeah, we don't just say the same thing every Sunday. Dramatically <laughs> impacted my life. Can you explain this to us? Yeah, yeah. So let, let, me, let me give one more skeptical quote. This time it is from 
Oprah Winfrey, okay, where, where so many people went for about 20 years to find uh, spiritual insight in our country. Uh, here we go. Oprah Winfrey speaking about sitting in a church service when she was in her late 20s. Some of you may have seen this clip. It's on YouTube to this day. Uh, the pastor's preaching about God's power, and then all of a sudden, quote, this is Oprah speaking, then he, the pastor, said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. Now stop. Jealous is in he desires us to praise him, desires our affections. It's the same issue. The Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in the rapture of that moment until he said jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking God is all, God is omnipresent. God is also jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me. And something, now listen, and something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. That's her standard of truth, by the way. What feels right in her, her intuition is her standard by which she judges God. That didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. So again, the assumptions running through this is that this would be a character flaw uh, in God. So I'll start and I want to hear from you guys on this more. There's one major piece of information that seems to be missing in the way that these individuals are thinking. They all seem to assume that there are better things for us in the universe than God. See, if God was just sort of somebody who can give us, like Santa Claus, can give us all of our dreams, but he's not really fulfilling in and of himself, but he can give us what's really fulfilling, then it would make no sense for God to be all about his own glory. But what if God has made a world that is a dim reflection of his beauty and glory and worth? What if El Capitan and Yosemite and Half Dome are just a dim reflection of the glory of the God who made those places with his little finger? What if the Grand Canyon that we've been to before, and some of you have been to the Grand Canyon, we got there at a sunset, we ran through some, there was actually some woods near the edge of where we were, I don't know where we were, and we run out to the lip of the Grand Canyon, there's a sunset, there is yellow sunlight coming through the clouds, it, there's birds flying around, there's mist in the canyon, I'm probably, what, 16 years old, 17 years old. I'm just stunned standing there on the edge of the Grand Canyon. In that moment, no one, by the way, standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon is thinking this. I'm pretty amazing. N nobody is standing there going, man, have you seen what I did in my junior year of high school on the football field? You, you would not believe how talented I was. No one is thinking that on the edge of the Grand Canyon. No one's thinking, man, what I had last night for dinner was incredible. You should have some of that pasta. No one is thinking that. On the edge of the Grand Canyon, guess what? For like five seconds, even a non-Christian for five seconds forgets that he or she exists and is caught up in something greater than himself or herself. Those are like tiny little echoes that God has given us in general revelation to say, hey, the best moments in life are not the moments when you're being made much of. The best moments of life are when you forget that you exist for a moment and you're caught up in something truly great that is beyond you and greater than you. This is why at the end of a, you know, at the end of some major sports event, if your team wins some championship game, in those moments, you literally forget every, all your problems don't exist, right? When your team wins at the very last second and you're jumping up and down going crazy, you forget all your problems. Why? You're caught up in something bigger, more glorious. And we use religious language for sports. We talk about the glory of the game. We even say glory, glory to old Georgia, which is not a song that I endorse. I mean, we, we, are, we are all about using glorification language for sports. Why? Because we know that we're made for something great. Well, what if sports is not actually as great as what we're actually made for? What if there's something oh, greater than football, 
greater than baseball, greater than all those things put together. Those are good things. They're gifts from God, but they're not the main thing. They're not the ultimate thing. What if the ultimate thing is the maker of the Grand Canyon, the maker of every athlete? What if the maker of the stars and all the, all the, all the, all the uh, galaxies out there, what if he is the one we're made for? Now, now listen, if that's true, then God is the only being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is a synonym for love. Because when God exalts the best thing in the universe, he has to exalt, he's stuck, he has no choice. He's, he has to exalt who? Himself. If he hid himself in mock humility and said, no, go enjoy the world that I've made, he is robbing you of the best thing for you. He's leaving you with idols that are dead in streets. But if he says, no, don't ultimately look to those things, look to me, I alone can satisfy you, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore in my presence, if, if that's what he can give you, then the most loving thing he can do is to say, drink deeply of the river of my delights. Worship me alone. Bow down to me. Give all your ability to worship to me. And guess what? You will receive great joy, satisfaction. You'll receive great love and great all, all the gifts of the gospel, forgiveness. And guess what? God will receive the glorification. So Greg, jumping on, I know this is something we talked about in the past a lot. Can you talk a little bit of the connection between our joy in God and how that leads to God being further glorified? Um, I'll try to get there. I have a comment okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's on, on love. Um, because, quoting Oprah, I believe that God is love. One of the things I hope we, we encourage you guys to do, and I hope this, this is one of those things that just sits in your brain and never leaves, is always get people to define their terms. Um, what do you mean by God is love? Oprah means, I mean, makes a big deal about me. He, you know, affirms me and what I want. Um, what I think is good for me, um, you know, whatever feels right in my spirit. That's loving to Oprah. That's love to the world. It's just affirming people in, in what they want to do with themselves. No, if you, one, one of the major aspects of love is pursuing what's best, what is going to benefit the most um, to the person you're showing love to. If, if you are not pursuing the best and desiring the best for someone, you don't love them. Um, I mean, like one of the reasons we get married is we believe that other person is going to devote their lives in large part to doing, pursuing our best and we're going to pursue their best. Like, like we want that for that other person. Um, and so if God is truly loving, it would be the most unloving thing in the world for him to withhold the one thing that will truly satisfy us forever, which is himself. Was it um, Augustine said, uh, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Meaning we all, and I'm borrowing this language from a number of people, we all have this like God-sized hole in our hearts and only God can fill that. And so why would we get mad at God and say, how dare you try to fill what only you can fill? I mean, it is the height of absurdity and it is the height of, I mean, it shows us what sin does. Sin takes beauty, glory, truth, and wonder, and it twists it and it distorts it such that Adam and Eve, who knew God and saw God in ways we never could, they would prefer to disobey and distrust the God who had done nothing but show them goodness and grace and love. Um, that's how sin works, is that we see something like this and we'll say, well, I believe God is love. And God, if God is love, he would never exalt himself. That is so distorted and twisted and an evidence of how far gone we can become in our sin. And jumping off that, when, when I exalt myself, I am distracting you from what can actually satisfy you. When you exalt your own name, 
The reason it's sinful is because you can't satisfy anyone's soul. I can't either. It's humbling to admit that. It's absolutely true. When you look at celebrities who really try to do it, like they become so famous. They're on all the magazines. They're, they're on the top of all the downloaded uh, songs. And they're, they're just like huge names. What do they do? They bend so often. They bend in on themselves and they become just distorted people, perverse in the way that they think about the world. They really do become gods in their own mind. Like they are the be all end all of everything. And that's where you have the, 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 the human sinfulness. But no, no, no. If God exalts God, it is love. When we exalt God, it is self-centered and distracting. It is actually robbing people of what they most need. Okay, so let, let me go a little further here. Um, let, me, let me give an illustration. Let me give an illustration. We're running low on time. This illustration, I'm sure many of you have heard this before. I want to connect a couple dots here before we close. So our joy in God glorifies God. This is a very basic idea at our church, but I want to, I want to reemphasize this. Sometimes people can say it is selfish to say that you should pursue joy in God. It can sound self-centered or selfish. Like that sounds like, come on, you're supposed to glorify God because he deserves it. Well, that's true. But here's an illustration from, from Piper. It's a famous one now. Um, he, he said, okay, imagine I'm coming home on, on the day of our anniversary with my wife. Now, they've been married more than 50 years. Let's say it's their 50th anniversary for the sake of the illustration. He's, he's coming home on his 50th anniversary to his wife. And he said, I go by the store and I buy, he said, these are expensive, 50 long stem red roses. And I go up to the front door of my own house and I ring the doorbell, which I never do because it's my house. And my wife, Noelle, comes down the stairs and she opens the door and she says, he pulls the roses out first, and she goes, why did you? Why did you buy these? So what if my first answer was to hold up my hand with a blank face and say, it's my duty. I uh, read a book about being a good husband, and you're supposed to buy flowers for your wife, and so I love you, honey. It's, it's my duty. I'm going to take you out tonight. That's what I'm supposed to do. He said, my wife will not smile. <laughs> no, she'll shut the door and say, let's try that again. Said, so let's rewind the tape. Let's say I get to the door, I ring the doorbell, and his wife opens the door. He pulls 50 long roses out from behind his back. <gasps> she goes, why did you? And he says, because nothing makes me happier than to spend time with you. In fact, I set up a babysitter for tonight. Go change clothes. We're going out tonight. There's no one I would enjoy being with tonight more than you. He said, not in a million years would my wife look at me and say, Nothing makes you happier. All you ever think about is you, you, you. Selfish. <laughs> she would not say that. Why? Because when you say to somebody, nothing makes me happier than to be with you, in that moment, you're not drawing attention to yourself. You're honoring the other person. When, when I say to you, you make me happy, you give me joy, being around you makes me happy, I am honoring your worth, right? So God has given us the capacity to enjoy one another so that we have the ability to honor one another. And who we're supposed to honor most is God. So when we say to God, everything else my soul has tried has left a dismal void. Jesus alone has satisfied and Jesus is mine. In that moment, we're giving God great glory. So God is getting the glory and we're getting the joy. And what we're saying is, to take it back to providence, God is working all things together for his glory. But what that means is it includes the good of his bride. Our good, our joy, and God's glory are not enemies. They are friends. And so when God is working everything for his glory, that is true, and we wouldn't have it any other way. But God is also working everything together to make us more like Jesus and to conform us into his image to give us completion of joy and satisfaction in him. Closing thought on that. Scott, can you pray for us? Sure, let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you again for the privilege to gather here uh, for Sunday school and to discuss uh, this incredible doctrine of, of your providence. And as Jerry said, uh, like right now during this time, we're, we're, we just we believe it. We're we're totally caught up into it. But then so often the next day we can we can lose sight of this. So Father, I pray we wouldn't. I pray that we would apply what we've learned here. Uh, you are absolutely, utterly sovereign. Uh, you do everything for for your glory. And for our good, I mean, everything in our life is being filtered through your fatherly care. So I pray that you would create trust in our lives, guard us from sin of anxiety, fear, worry. Uh, I pray that uh, we would pray regularly, consistently, even this week, that your name uh, would be hallowed to, to get us off of our own self-centeredness and help us to remember that uh, our joy in you honors you and glorifies you. They're, they're, your glory and our joy are not at odds. They're, they're working together. And what a wonderful thing. That is, I pray you'd be at work during the service uh, to build up your people and the community groups as well after the service. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.